Hello, and welcome back to the New Glarus Brewing Podcast with Dan Carey. I am Scott May. We have Dan Carey with us this week, and we are going to be talking, um, you know, sort of about beer as an agricultural product, because really it is. You can't have beer without certain uh, certain ingredients that come from the ground, uh, whether it's water, whether it's hops, whether it's barley, and you can't have those things without uh, the places to grow them. Uh, the varieties in which they grow, the varieties in which uh, make them optimal for certain styles and different iterations of beer, why certain varieties were grown over others and bred over others. So we're looking forward to getting into a little bit of that as well as steps, uh, you know, that Nuglaris has taken to try to to try to think more deeply about the ingredients in their beer. Does that sound about right, Dan? Yeah, that sounds good. So one of the things I wanted to start off with, because... You know, and I know hops sort of, we've talked about before, like hops are the rock star of sort of the beer ingredients as far as sure. when you talk to people around, like, uh, especially with IPAs and stuff yeah, like that. They're like, the lead guitarist. They, uh, people know the names of the variety yeah, of exactly. hops. I, I'd be hard pressed to find somebody on the street who would say uh, they knew the name by... Uh, barley varieties. Yeah, by yeah. Bar- barley yeah, varieties. Yeah, that's a good point. It's accurate. So I figured we'd, we'd start with, with barley and... I remember seeing, oh, probably oh, seven, eight years ago now, you had an article in the paper where you were essentially talking about the importance of, of barley to beer. But not only that, but you, I think you were down in a barley field somewhere around Monroe. And, it, and, and the genesis of the article was that you had, you know, I went out of your way to sort of contact this, this farmer to say, hey, why don't you plant a couple of fields of barley down in southern Wisconsin so we can see how that, that would go? What was sort of your inspiration to, to want to do that? Uh, well, you know, uh, we're a Wisconsin-only brewery, so buying uh, local raw ingredients is always important. Um, lo- uh, supporting local agriculture is uh, a good investment for us because it's agriculture is one of those fundamental businesses that uh, mm-hmm. everything springs from uh, economically. So it makes good sense for us to support local agriculture uh, because that means that we have customers that can uh, buy our beer. And now we were talking about, uh, you know, the layman doesn't really, you, you wouldn't really be able to say what variety of barley goes in any given beer. Whereas you could be like, oh yeah, that's, uh, you know, the layman could be like, oh, that's, you know, diamond hops or, or, or whatever. What kind of barley were you trying to grow here in Wisconsin? Well, yeah. that's, uh, the, the, the problem with Wisconsin is it's, we can't be choosy about our varieties because it's a really tough place to grow barley. So it's generally, um, we're looking for barleys that were bred to grow in this area. And that usually means barleys that were bred at North Dakota State University. So varieties like Genesis that are um, disease resistant. It's mm-hmm. so humid and hot here uh, that we need... Um, varieties that are resistant to fungal attack. Also, there's a lot of corn, a lot of maize here, and maize is a vector for um, uh, uh, for diseases that affect barley. So trying to f- find v- uh, varieties that are disease resistant uh, is really the goal. And that, that became like a pretty much a big challenge for you, right? Because when we were talking about this a little bit before, Wisconsin's not the great climate for barley. So, yeah. So how long, 
you know, how long were you, did this sort of experiment with trying to grow sort of barley that would be uh, good for a beer you were making in Wisconsin sort of last? Oh, I tried it, tried for probably 10 to 15 years to, uh, with various farmers. We tried, uh, around here, around the brewery mm-hmm. and around Monroe, uh, uh, to the east around Milwaukee and up north around La Crosse, um, various attempts to try to, uh, find a place that would work for growing barley. You know, and I really, you know, and I didn't know, I didn't know that little bit of it that you tried sort of all four corners of the state, but it's kind of, to me, it's like showing a, a commitment to, to, to this thing. Cause it's like, well, if it didn't work in the South, maybe it'll work in the East or maybe it will work up North. What were some of the, uh, sort of the, um, environmental differences, I guess, that you were looking at as far as the variance in that geography goes? Well, uh, <laughs> It's, it is, uh, we tried really, I said around Milwaukee, but it was really more around the central sands, mm-hmm. uh, uh is, is east of here, northeast of here around Stevens point. So that was, um, a, a different type of soil, uh, more sandy, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, around lacrosse would have been a more moderate climate along the river, the slopes along the river. Um, and, uh, yeah, just looking at different areas. And it also has to do with the temperament of farmers, to find farmers that are willing to take a chance uh, to do something besides corn and soybean. Now, you're saying corn being so prevalent here ultimately leads to a challenge to barley growing. So like even if you could find uh, a variety of barley that grows in the sort of hot, humid uh, summers we have with uh, nights that don't exactly cool down as they do in other spots, you would still be facing challenges there, right? Yeah. Uh, th- th- yes, that's right. Uh, barley and, and corn are not are not good friends. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the other problem is it's not only that the, uh, you know, uh, barley, barley likes uh, hot, hot, dry, hot days and cool nights. Uh, we have uh, we have hot days and nights and high humidity. Barley doesn't like wet feet. Um, th- the other option would be to um, to grow winter barley because most of most brewing barley is spring sown. Mm-hmm. So you know it's 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 sown after uh, after thaw, say you know April ish, May ish, and then it's harvested in uh, late August, for example. So it's it's in the field in the hot, uh, humid uh, Wisconsin summer. So if we could grow winter barley, we would we would plant it in the fall. It would overwinter, and then you know we would harvest it midsummer before mm-hmm. the heat hit, and that would be a home run. And and the problem is is that. Barley is not hardy enough to survive the winter. It's too cold here, yeah. particularly in years when there's no snow cover. When there's snow cover, barley is protected. It's insulated from the frigid cold. But it's often now happens that we have very cold temperatures without any snow cover. Yeah. And then the, we have a lot of die off. So the barley will die. If, if we had if we were warmer, uh, winters were warmer, we could grow winter barley, get it out of the field before the heat of August. And there might even be a chance for the farmer to get a second crop in on their field. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, we're neither here nor there. So uh, winter barley, you might find south of here in places like Indiana, uh, where it can be successful. So we're kind of neither here nor there. Wisconsin used to be a great barley growing area, but it's, um, it's no longer the case because corn has come. And corn came here because of clever breeding. Uh, breeders developed corn that can survive um, 
shorter growing season that can uh, um, do well in our climate that historically corn would have been grown south of here. Yeah. But uh, now now the growing season's longer. Corn, corn takes longer to grow. It's more intensive. So um, it it's keeps, because of breeding and changes in weather, it keeps marching farther north and farther west supplanting barley and therefore barley is continuing to be pushed farther north and uh, farther west. So essentially we are too far north to have a mild enough winter for winter barley and we're too far south or yeah and we're too far south. We we have too much uh, I guess you might say I don't know Gulf of Mexico impact uh, and the, the Rocky mountain is, is, is blocks the, the, you know, the, the movement of, of cool air. And mm-hmm. so we're kind of just sweltering in yeah. the summer and it, it's, uh, it's problematic, uh, for growing barley, uh, a brewing quality barley. So after this 10 to 15 years, sort of just seeing how possible it would be just a whole host of like, um, you know, environmental and, and just, uh, agricultural reasons why it, it, it brewing or uh, growing barley to the quality that you would expect to see, uh, that uh, you could get from one of your mold houses, uh, just couldn't really happen here in Wisconsin. But that being said, you were telling me Wisconsin, what makes it bad for barley also makes it pretty okay for hops. Yeah, you know, hops were grown here um, over 100 years ago, and uh, they did really well here. But then uh, disease caught up with them, mm-hmm. uh, and so the 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 uh, uh, the industry collapsed, and and then it, it moved uh, eventually moved out to Yakima, where it's dry and irrigated. Uh, but um, oh, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, uh, uh, farmers, small farmers, started to look at growing, uh, uh, growing hops. And there's a Wisconsin Hop Exchange um, that uh, uh, is is uh, doing really well. Uh, James, a man by the name of James Altweiss kind of was the impetus for this industry. He was trying. I supported him because his goal was to find value added ways for small farmers to have a, say a boutique crop Mm -hmm. that would have a high return for them so that small farms could survive so that we're not constantly moving towards bigger and bigger industrial farms. So a small family farm could survive with say half or one or five or 10 acres of of hops. So he, as well as other crops, other boutique crops or, or specialty crops, maybe is a better word. So, um, he started to move in this direction and I, I really wanted to support that. So I started to buy hops from him and his, his work became in the Wisconsin hop exchange, which is a collective, a co-op of farmers around the state, all over the state for every corner of the state. And they represent farms that are anywhere from, I think 15 acres down to half an acre. And we're probably the largest uh, user. No, we are the largest user of Wisconsin grown hops. Um, we uh, we use Wisconsin hops in Moonman and now in Spotted Cow. Mm-hmm. And the although the growing of barley was not successful, the the hop farms are doing really really well. And um, 
as far as quality. Yeah. It's a tough business growing hops. Well, they're, they're unwieldy. They're, they well, kind of have a mind of their yeah, own. And it's, it's, it's labor intensive. Yeah, you got to build trellises, the whole uh, nine. And you have to be out in the field pretty much every day. In a lot of ways, it's like growing grapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like, uh, I mean, basically, I hear farmers say growing corn and soybeans is idiot proof. Put it in the ground and it grows. Yeah. Hops need to be coaxed. They need to be sprayed against fungus. They need to be tended to. There's, there's, there's lots of insects. Uh, Asian beetle. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Japanese beetles are a big problem, mm-hmm. um, and uh, or at least around here, and uh, fungal attack. So it's a lot of work to produce a good crop. But there's something unique about our climate. So the hops that are grown here produce a very nice fruity flavor. And we really like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's um, it's working well for us. And what we've done is, you know, the the, the, the hops that are grown out in Oregon and Washington um, on large farms, say farms that are maybe many hundreds of acres, these are multi-generational farms that have huge infrastructures. Maybe they grow apples and other crops and they're very integrated and large. They have their own research groups and they're big. Yeah. And so they're very, very efficient. The small family farm, not so much. So we have to pay a premium. So I pay a premium over what the Wisconsin hop growers have asked. Mm -hmm. I'll pay like 10% more than that because I want them to invest in the future. And they can't improve and learn unless they're making a buck. If they're making a buck, they can have the proper machinery. They can... um, spend time in the field because like all small farms, they have other day jobs. I mean, which Mm -hmm. kind of sucks for a farmer that they have to have two jobs, but um, this allows them to uh, be successful. And the other problem is, is that if someone says, I want high quality. Yeah. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. What does that exactly? Because everybody, yeah, everybody has a different idea, has different expectations. So I'm really good at going out in the field, meeting with the farmers and explaining exactly how I want them to grow the hops. And it works really well for me because when I go out to Oregon and Washington and I go to a 500 or 1,000 acre farm, I might be one of 300 brewers that goes out there. So it's hard for me to be heard mm-hmm. what my expectations are, because if you get 300 brewers together, you're going to have 500 or 600 different opinions. Uh, on what makes a good hop. Is, exactly. it, is it imparting bitterness units? Is it imparting citrus flavor? Is yeah. it imparting and pininess? Well, the idiosyncrasies of how you grow it, how you process it, how you dry it, how you how you bale it, how you mm-hmm. pelletize it, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things. And so with... With my friends in Wisconsin, I'm. They have, they have, uh, they have, or I have their ear, so yeah. they will do what I want, and they've done exactly what I want, and it's, it's. I think it's benefited the quality of the hops in a way that suits our brewery, and they're they're producing really, really nice hops. And and a couple of things in your answer there that I that I really enjoyed um, is this idea of diversifying small farms with sort of uh, boutique or specialty specialty crops because I, you know I was talking uh, I was telling you earlier today I was talking to Dan Dan Jelly and he grew up on a dairy farm and 
you know, and basically what he was telling me is it's like, uh, you know, it's a really tough gig. It's like, you got to take a loan out for every new piece of equipment. You either get big or you go broke. It's just sort of, it is sort of that sort of business. Like every piece of equipment costs $127,000 and the price of a, you know, a gallon of milk is, isn't going, you know, up by that, but you have to basically invest all your profit just to, to keep going. So encouraging, you know, small farmers who are doing these sort of things to diversify into, into what our state has as one of its larger industries, which is brewing is, is, is probably a genius idea. And if you can't, you know, if, if getting the barley in the ground is not going to work here, but hops are that it just seems to make a lot of sense that investing in that for just, you know, a security of supply uh, situation with the way the climate's sort of acting in other places is a smart move. Yeah. You, you, you kind of, uh, touched on a, a couple of different subjects that, uh, first uh, yeah, of no, all, I do that a little uh, bit. No, it's, it's great. Uh, the, the idea of, uh, uh, the small farm in Wisconsin is, uh, I think is a fundamental thing for cultural reasons. Mm-hmm. If you go to places like Switzerland, uh, the, the, um, the small farms are, are subsidized, you know, so somebody might have, I don't know, 20 cows that they milk. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful farm on the side of the road. I don't mean that the government writes them a check, but maybe they have a job mowing the, maybe they have the right-of-ways, mowing the roads through their area or doing things and they get tax breaks. Mm-hmm. In America, it appears that we generally give the tax breaks to the large farms, yeah. um, and which is fine because America is an is a agricultural powerhouse. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, it's where we're really, as a country, we're really, really good at it. So uh, the government supports the large, successful farmers. However, the small farms are culturally important, uh, especially in a small town like New Glarus. When we started our brewery in 93, there was uh, obviously it was a catastrophic, it was a catastrophic time in the dairy business. And every week there was two or three auctions. Uh, Anybody that lived through the nineties remembers these every week, there were small family farms going out of business. Mm -hmm. And it's a gut wrenching experience when families that have lived there for multi-generations, three, four generations, they get kicked off their land and all every, their, 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 their cattle get, their cows get sold, their tractors get sold, all of their tools, everything. It's, it's, it's an awful, awful thing. Oh, it's gotta be like watching your life just go down the street. Exactly. And so when they're gone, the implement dealer's gone, the blacksmith's gone, the local coffee shop is gone, the five and dime is gone, the hardware store is gone. And all of a sudden your town is gutted. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a cultural loss. That's an economic loss. And then you add on to that, that a lot of these, um, uh, uh, farms are, are, are family run. So kids that grow up on farms, they learn, they learn the work ethic. Um, you know, they, uh, they become contributing members of our society because they understand work. They understand how to get things done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I think I've told the story before maybe that, um, I, I, I knew a man whose father was a tank commander in the German army. And he, he, his father had said, and he told this guy, he told me that his father told him that when the Germans, when their tanks broke down, they had to sit on the, during world war two, they had to sit on the side of the road and wait for the technicians to come and fix their tanks because they were so complicated. The American Sherman tanks, when they broke down, 
he he said the farm kids, American farm kids, would get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they they'd pop out and with whatever spit and baling wire they could find, they'd cobble together something and they'd get that tank moving. So this is a um, this can do attitude is le- learned on the small family farm. So so maybe you know maybe I'm being a little bit too dramatic here, but supporting small farms, I think is a worthwhile thing to do. So that's, that's one thing. And then on the other hand, um, we're seeing now with recent weather, climate change, and also uh, problems with international shipping. You know, we've built this world where everything is interconnected, mm-hmm. uh, that a, a car is built with parts from all over the world. And that's very efficient. And that works great. As long as you can get sea containers moving quickly across yeah. the ocean. It works when it's working. Yeah. And, and, but it has a, obviously has a vulnerability mm-hmm. and to get a sea container to ship something across the ocean is, is, uh, uh now twice as expensive as it used to be and takes twice as long. And, uh, the, it's a vulnerable because we're, I think it's clear that we're on the cusp of a possible expanding war. I hate to say it. It's mm-hmm. a vulnerability. Yeah. So um, for all of those reasons, diversification of supply is important. So most of our malting barley comes from the Rocky Mountains. It comes from Montana. It comes from Idaho and Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Some of it for our more European style beers are say, say a gyrator Bach or two women, they, they, we use in part malt from Czech Republic or Germany. Mm-hmm. And that is a vulnerability because weather is changing in Europe and it's beginning, it's going to be difficult to get good raw materials. So I'm trying to figure out ways to grow those varieties in the United States so that I'm protect it. So I'm trying, I'm always looking for ways to protect my supply chain. You know, yeah. like, a, like it's like war. You, you're nothing if your supply chain is vulnerable. Yeah. If, if yeah, uh, the army marches on its stomach, kind of a, you know, kind of a deal. Exactly. So, but you touched on something that I was very, very interested in, in uh, that you say, you know, a, a lot of the malted uh, barley to be malted and the malt houses that you use are here in Wisconsin. So uh, yeah, Manitowoc and uh, Shakopee, Minnesota. Yeah, so the raw material comes into there, they malt it for you, and then yep. it gets shipped to you. But you said the Rockies, Idaho, that sort of region where uh, yep. the the cool air at night gets trapped behind the, yep. behind the Rockies. But then you also get from Czech Republic, and this is for different styles of beers, right? That's right. Spotty Cow is 100% American, uh, and Moon Man, they're both 100% uh, uh, Rocky Mountain uh, malted barley, and uh, Two Women is made with uh, Czech Check malt. And yeah, and then sort of like the Nuglaris Pilsner, you'd probably get malted barley. Uh, Nuglaris Pilsner is two thirds. uh, Well, it's one third German, one third Czech and one third American. And so, and you said something to me before this, that was very interesting, which is uh, the, the difference in the varieties of barley being produced in each country are basically, basically cultural, right? The, the, the kind of beer that kind of those, those countries like to drink. Yeah. So if you want to make a tr- sort of a true to um, a palate, uh, Czech style Pilsner or German style lager, uh, it'll be harder for you to get barley varieties that sort of match that style here in America. Correct. Historically, that is true. Uh, um, because the, 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 the barley varieties that are available that are that are grown in a given area are come from breeding at mm-hmm. least in the last 140 or so years uh, uh 
barley has been deliberately bred. And so there are people that are breeders and that's their job. And they're paid by brewers and maltsters uh, fund that work. It's in the United States, it's mainly done uh, at universities mm-hmm. um, and uh, funded by industry. But in Europe, it's done by private industry because it's a it's a bigger business, so it's yeah. more profitable. So it's done done by private is industry. But uh, it takes about ten years to come up with a variety and the the breeding goals, the type of barley that are that are bred are dictated by the people who are paying for the breeding, obviously, yeah. as it should be. And historically, f- since breeding started in America maybe 90 years ago, um, that uh, has been paid for by the large brewers. Mm-hmm. And I'm our company is part of the American Malting Barley Association. And that association has historically been a collective of large brewers. Now that's changed and there are small brewers involved and we collectively fund breeding. So we have asked breeders to produce barley more suited to the European taste, mm-hmm. um, but that will grow in America. That's a long-term investment. It's going to take some years decade. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, mm-hmm. you have to define what you mean by this given character. Yeah. Everybody has a different opinion and what exactly it is. Eh, we can't really define. There's, there's lots, so many different, uh, idiosyncrasies that are, or, uh, key points that go into a barley breeding and then malting of the same. So, uh, it's a long-term investment in research. And then secondly, uh, there are the European barley varieties have been bred to produce a flavor typical of a European beer. So what, what I'm doing is bringing, I, I started, I started, oh, I don't know, again, 15 years mm-hmm. ago, I, I talked to my mentor, Ludwig Narcissus. I've talked to, talked about him before. And I said, Ludwig, over your lifetime, he's, he, he lived to be 97 years old. So he's been a brewer all his life. I said, over your lifetime, please tell me the barley varieties that are most notable. So he made a list of them and I did the same thing in Czech Republic. He did, he's in Germany. I did the same thing in Czech Republic. I brought a bunch of barley varieties over one pound, half a kilo of each of these varieties. The breeders thought I was crazy. What, what does this guy want with all of these old varieties? Yeah. I brought them over. I gave them to a, um, a researcher at Oregon State University who had a family farm in Oregon. He was a farmer and a, uh, a a brewing researcher, so it was perfect. And he started to grow it for me. And together, he we found out which ones were most agronomically interesting. So mm-hmm. we started to whittle it down, and then we picked the ones that had the best taste. And then I brought that to Colorado and had a larger malt house malt that for me until we whittled it down to one variety. And then I brought it to my Wisconsin supplier and we're growing that barley now in Wyoming and malting it here in Wisconsin as a replacement or at least a supplement Mm -hmm. uh, to diversify our European character. And the hope is that this is a European barley variety growing in Wyoming, uh, Powell, Wyoming, which is a beautiful growing area. It's perfect for barley. And we're malting it in the... European in the Czech way, which mm-hmm. is different, different malting process than the North American malt. Again, North American malt was bred to produce the um, traditional American style light lagers, yeah. uh, which, which is fine, but it's a relatively 
clean and mm-hmm. neutral taste. It's beautiful. However, it's not the full, rich, bready type of character that you get from a continental type. Yeah, because it was its point was never to be that. It was that's right. It was that's to, right. It, it was, was because it was being funded by brewers who had an interest in in this kind of barley for the kind of beer they were right. making. And a, 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 a barley that uh, will produce a malt that has good drinkability and is that suited to work with corner rice. Mm-hmm. So um, American brewers, historically, uh, large brewers, brew with a large percentage of rice or corn, say, say 40% mm-hmm. and 60% malt, whereas in Europe they use 100% malt. So it produces a very, very different character and a very different expectation uh, different outcomes, different inputs. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a uh, um, and, and to understand what the causes of that difference are, is it, is it, is it the geography? Is it the culture? Is it the malting process? Is it the variety? Those are the things that I'm working on. And it's a complex question. This is wildly interesting to me. This is, this is absolutely fascinating to me because it, it just pulls in context of like, you know, history and, and, you know, uh, agriculture and what can be grown where and how these things sort of build up over generations and generations and then how industry responds to these things. Yeah, and, that's right. And then you have in the Americas sort of this, uh, idea of, you know, after prohibition, you get these, these large breweries, which are making vast amounts of beer, but they have a very specific thing in mind. So then how does that, uh, stunt, uh, you know, variety in agricultural crops and how does it benefit variety in agricultural crops? And then you have craft brewing sort of springing, springing up sometime in the eighties going, well, wait a minute. Now we want access to these other things. Sure, so, sure. you know, this is just, this is just wildly fascinating that then you're now, you know, you we're sort of 20, 30 years on from the onset of craft brewing. And this is the kind of work you got, you're, you're doing. Did you sort of ever in your mind when you were studying at sort of like UC Davis or at Siebel think to yourself, I really want to sit down with malt breeders and really dive into this? I, actually, I kind of did. You kind of did? Always, uh, most of my uh, brothers and sisters in the, hop, in the brewing business are, are very hop centric. Mm-hmm. They lo- love hops. I certainly, I love hops like every like, brewer. What's but, not to love? Yeah, right. But, uh, Barley malt, uh, the, 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 the rich flavor, the, uh, fundamental richness, fullness of, of really nice malt has always intrigued me. And, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, even the first time that I, I probably was, I don't know, 16 or 18 when I had a first German Doppelbach and, uh, when I was a kid and I thought, wow, wow. Okay. It was, you know, it was probably an old, old bottle of beer, but yeah. I thought, uh, this is really this is different. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, you know, I, I certainly loved, uh, American beer. I don't have a problem with it. I, I love American beer too, but it's different. It's a different animal. It's a taste different. It's a different expectation. Well, yeah. And, and I think the, the fascination with barley is, is you know, isn't as un, un- understandable it might seem, you know what I mean? Cause, uh, hops have, you know, hops have the cachet of like, this is what imparts, you know, the bitterness or the fruitiness or whatever flavor, but for someone who's thinking about constructing a recipe, you know, you, you don't have anything if you don't have your base. That's right. right. And, That's right. And, and barley to me seems like whether it's, it's intended to be unintrusive, unnoticed, uh, yep. clean. Yep. 
it's still a base for uh, yeah. that hop forward beer. But if it's intended to be noticed, if it's intended to be sort of seen as in more in the European style, and if that's the style you gravitate to, it's still going to be a base of the beer. It's still going to be everything. Uh, it's still going to be what everything else is constructed on top of, but it's going to be sort of the star of the show in your mind, I guess. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a, a really good way of saying it. Um, if you look at say, um, a German style Pilsner. Mm -hmm. This is generally a hop forward beer and you want it to be what, what maybe the Germans might call lean. The malt is lean. It's Mm -hmm. well attenuated. It tastes, I don't want to say thin, but it's, it's not rich. Yeah. The hops are what you're looking for. They can fade into the background a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, there are some areas of Germany that lean more towards Pilsners that are richer in character, say in Northern Northern Bavaria, you find beers that have more malt balance. And those are the kind of beers that I gravitate towards. So certainly uh, a Pilsner or an IPA should be about the hops. Mm -hmm. But I want there to be more than just hops. Um, There has to be a richness behind it. I don't mean it to be, I don't mean that I want it to be satiating, but there has to be some character that is the foundation that this a sparkle of hops is built upon. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I, we'll talk about it when we talk about IPAs in a different um, podcast, but, but IPAs are more than just hops. You need to have a really good foundation of malt. And if you, if you do that right and you get that balance, you know, of, of the different, it's like music. Yeah. It has to be balanced. Yeah. And, and it's almost like it's a mistake. It, it, it would be a mistake. And I think people probably do make the mistake of, of overemphasizing hops and beer, right? Cause it is going to be ultimately a balance between, but between the hops, the, the barley, the quality of the water certainly. And then, oh, yeah. and then whatever else goes into it. Right. Oh, it's just, it is just really, really fascinating. It's, it's funny when I, I'm thinking of just talking this through with you about, uh, you know, you're talking to brewers about, you know, to four or 500 different opinions on what makes this hop. I'm reminded of the old quote from the Supreme Court is like, uh, I can't define it for you, but I'll know it when I see it. Yeah, that's right. You, you know, what I mean? yeah, it seems yeah. like barley is kind of like that because it's, it is sort of um, not a background player, but just not something. It seems like a lot of people put a lot of thought into to define these things. Uh, a barley. Yeah. Oh Yeah. Oh, there's a whole, there's a, there's a really great breeders in the United States, um, uh, in Minnesota, in North Dakota, in Oregon, in, uh, in Montana, um, uh, and in, uh, California, UC Davis. So there are, um, there are, um, university funded, uh, really good breeders and they've done a great job. They're really clever. They work hard and they don't get a lot of respect. Well, here at the New Glarus Brewing Podcast with Dan Carey, they get a lot of respect. Oh, I, I love I love breeders. I love talking to breeders. I love hearing what they're up to. Uh, you know, they're they're uh, they they're you know they're farm people. Well, this has been just just an amazing discussion about uh, beer as sort of an agriculture product, but but I think more focusing on on the unsung hero in beer, which is malt and or barley and, and malted barley. Is there anything you didn't get to say about this uh, topic? Or I'm sure you could probably fill <laughs> an well, hour it, talking it, about it, barley, but it might help to to kind of for people that are unfamiliar with these terms. Um, hops is like a spice, yeah. So, uh, for example, um, 
in a in a uh, in a keg of beer. Maybe there's um, maybe there's to make a keg of beer. Maybe we need. 20, 20 pounds of malt, mm-hmm. malted barley, and maybe we need a uh, uh, half a pound or a pound or two of hops. So hops are a spice, and barley is really where the color and um, alcohol and flavor come from, and the hops contribute bitterness, the snap, and the aroma, um, hoppy aroma of beer. And we don't really use barley we use malted barley mm-hmm. so what that means is the farmers grow the barley the barley is contracted by the malt house and purchased by the malt house as i said in in manitowoc in, in shakopee minnesota and they malt it and turn it into barley malt mm-hmm. and or or malted wheat sometimes and th- that process means they simply um take the barley, they clean it and grate it. They soak it in water, uh, like making bean sprouts until it starts to sprout. And then they promote that sprouting for four days and then they kiln dry it. And depending on how they kiln dry it, it controls the color and, uh, uh, more kilning. It will give you a more bready, darker color. So you can make anywhere from a stout to a, to a staghorn Oktoberfest, uh, to a pale beer, like, um, totally naked depending on how it's kiln dried so it's a it's a it's a complicated uh industry uh so farming is difficult and complicated malting is difficult and complicated just like uh brewing yeah and that's not even talking about then you can go ahead and smoke it if you want to <laughs> uh, yes not not smoke it like a cigarette but, yeah. but you can make a smoked malt uh, uh rauk malt yeah but we did talk a little bit about how uh, barley didn't really wasn't able to really take off in Wisconsin, and um, I don't want to do a disservice to our state as we do grow a lot of good crops here. I I, I know a lot of fruit you use uh, can yeah. come from here in the state as well because we do do like cherries really well and cranberries yeah. really well. And our, things all like of that. our cherries come from uh, Door County, and um, all of our apples come from uh, uh, from Wisconsin also. So we do buy a lot of uh, a lot of fruit here. So we can do hops and we can do your apples for you. We can do your cranberries and your yeah. cherries for you. We'll just have to go. We'll have to go on the other side of the Rockies if we yeah, want. Yeah, that's unfortunately the case. The, get the barley going. That's right. That's right. Well, Dan, as always, it's always interesting to talk to you about these things. I honestly, I learned a lot <laughs> talking to you about this, uh, specifically about uh, European style barley and the efforts that are being made to sort of, you know, ensure that brewers in America will still have access to that stuff going through the future, and we can. And we can still be able to enjoy our nice German style lagers yeah. and Czech well, style. We are p- certainly at a tipping point. So things, one thing is for certain that change will continue, that the tomorrow will be, who knows what we're going to see when we open the paper tomorrow. That is true. The only guarantee is that it will not be the same. That's mo- right. Yeah. That's things right. do not stay the same for long. That's right. You have yourself a good one, Dan. Thank you. Take care, Scott. <laughs>